Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience Amateur Hour. How are you? I hope that you enjoyed learning about the neuroscience of speech production last week. I was talking to my mentor at work about what should be next in my little mini-series about speech and language, and he actually recommended talking about how the brain regions involved in language are different in people who are deaf. I'm actually especially curious in how those brain regions are similar or different in individuals who use American Sign Language. But that is a topic for next week. Before I get into this episode, I wanted to let you guys know that I've set up a Buy Me a Coffee page. If you enjoy my podcast and you have the means or the desire to support me and my work, please buy me a coffee. I'm very much producing this content in my free time, and your financial support would be much appreciated. I'm trying to save up for a new mic to replace the one I got off of Amazon for $16. The link to do so is buymeacoffee.com slash neuroscience and can be found in the show notes at the bottom of the page. If you don't have the means please know that I just, I appreciate that you're here. I appreciate your reviews, your ratings, your emails, your Insta messages, and simply that you're here and you're listening. And I hope that you're learning something cool with me every single week. I appreciate each and every single one of you. Cool. So today is all about tobacco and the neuroscience of smoking cigarettes. Tobacco is a common name for several plants in the genus Nicotania of the family so, solan- Solanaceae? Solanaceae. Solanaceae. <laughs> and is the way that we refer to any product prepared from the cured leaves of those plants. These dried tobacco leaves are mainly used for smoking in cigarettes and cigars, but can also be consumed via pipe, as chewing tobacco, or as snuff, which is finely ground tobacco inhaled through the nose along with, you know, other ways of consuming that I'm just I'm sure I just don't know about, honestly. Tobacco has a long and storied history. It's long been used in the Americas, stretching all the way back to 6000 BC. It was smoked for religious purposes and traded as a prized good by the native people. But it was the arrival of the Spanish that ultimately helped to spread tobacco to Europe and the rest of the world. Bartolomeu de las Casas, a Spanish historian, recounted how the first scouts sent by Columbus into the interior of Cuba found, quote, men with half-burned wood in their hands and certain herbs to take their smokes, which are some dry herbs put in a certain leaf, also dry, and having lighted one part of it, by the other they suck, absorb, or receive that smoke inside with the breath by which they become benumbed and almost drunk, and so it is said that they do not feel fatigue. Following the arrival of the Europeans, tobacco was one of the primary products fueling the colonization of the New World, and an important factor in the incorporation of the African slave trade. Eventually, tobacco came to conquer every corner of the globe. It spread to Asia through Portuguese sailors, and to Australia from Indonesian fishermen. Now, it's, it's difficult to find a country or culture that doesn't know what tobacco is. For a long time, it was hailed as a miracle cure for a great many ailments. It was said to cure headaches and nasal issues, and even in the 1930s, cigarettes were marketed as recommended by doctors for asthma and digestive issues. If you've ever seen House, it's a, it's a medical show about diagnosing rare conditions. 
I think there's an episode where he recommends cigarettes to a man dressed as Father Christmas for his like stomach ache or something like that. But I also found this paper published in 1996 on the benefits of smoking because someone somewhere had to do that research project. It was titled Beneficial Effects of Nicotine and Cigarette Smoking, the Real, the Possible, and the Spurious. The paper stated that there are some potentially protective effects against hypertensive disorders and that smoking has been found to be inversely related with endometrial cancer. However, cancers of the breast and colon are unrelated. There are also some findings that show that cigarette smoking and nicotine may prevent or ameliorate Parkinson's disease and could do do so in Alzheimer's dementia as well. But before you go out and buy a pack to prevent neurodegenerative diseases, please know that even established inverse associations cannot be used to justify cigarette smoking. Rather, these findings are important in clarifying the mechanisms of the disease and to point to a productive treatment. And as we understand more about the long-term effects of smoking tobacco, we understand that it's really, really, really bad for you. Besides the neurological effects, which, I mean, I'll get to in a moment, there's the simple fact that something like 80 to 90% of lung cancer cases are associated with smoking. On top of that, according to the CDC, smoking causes cancer, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It also increases the risk of tuberculosis, certain eye diseases, and problems of the immune system. In the Western world, illnesses related to smoking are believed to be the cause of 20% of all deaths, making nicotine addiction the single largest cause of preventable mortality. And I hope that you're, you know, appropriately turned off by now. (laughs) In fact, one of my favorite facts about humanity is that nicotine, the active ingredient in tobacco, is a poison that plants evolved to prevent insects and animals from eating them. So what did humans decide to do? They said, weird poisonous plant. Hmm, let me set it on fire and inhale it to get high. Honestly, sometimes I wonder how we're still here. I can, I guess I can imagine a scenario where there was a forest fire somewhere and these tobacco plants caught fire and the locals were like, oh, wow, cool, the burning plant is making us feel calm. But regardless, nicotine is technically poison. So let's get into the neuroscience of smoking. The active ingredient, nicotine, is a chemical, an alkaloid, which is simply a class of nitrogenous organic compounds of plant origins that have pronounced physiological actions on humans. In this case, nicotine stimulates the central nervous system. It acts as an agonist or activator at nicotinic acetylcholinergic receptors in cells that are either at the neuromuscular junction or are throughout the brain. Yep, that's right. We have receptors named specifically because they can respond to nicotine. These nicotinic acetylcholinergic receptors, they are cation-selective, ligand-gated ion channels that mediate fast neurotransmission in the central and peripheral nervous system. So what does that mean? Let's break that sentence down. So we've got nicotinic, meaning that these receptors open when nicotine attaches to them, Acetylcholinergic, meaning that they'll also respond to the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. Cation selective means that these receptors will only let positively charged ions through, like potassium. And ligand gated means that in order to open, these channels need to be bound to a chemical messenger, a ligand, such as a neurotransmitter. 
If you're interested in this level of neuroscience, things like ionic channels and their structures and how people are developing new methods of X-ray crystallography to study them, check out the work of Dr. Uh, I might be pronouncing this wrong, Patapushian at Scripps or Stephen Brohan at UC Berkeley. I've never been personally able to get into molecular neuroscience. I just I find it so far away from the things that I can feel and sense and see, you know. Sorry, enough about my opinions. More about nicotine. These nicotinic acetylcholinergic receptors are a key player in neuronal communication. They mediate synaptic transmission at the, du- at the junction between nerves and muscle cells, and they're expressed throughout the brain, where they're involved in fast synaptic transmission. Now, the word fast is kind of important here. It, fast synaptic transmission is different than slow synaptic transmission, just in that they serve different purposes in the brain. These receptors are scattered all over the brain. The cortex, the hippocampus, the cerebellum, the spinal cord, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, and the striatum. And there's broad diversity even among the separate brain regions with regards to the subunits that make up the receptors. It's a big, holy shit, the brain is complex and beautiful moment. But it also makes it really difficult to study and to target drugs to these receptors. So what are these receptors doing? What does their activation mean on a systemic level? So when someone takes a drag from a cigarette, nicotine floods their system. It's absorbed through the mucous membranes in the mouth and reaches the brain quickly. Immediately after exposure, there's a kick caused in part by the drug stimulation of the adrenal glands and a rush of adrenaline, which in turn increases blood pressure, respiration, and heart rate. When these receptors are activated, they will in turn facilitate the release of neurotransmitters such as dopamine, producing pleasure, stimulation, and mood modulation. Now, this falls well in line with the self-reported sensations of smoking, which is that they produce a sense of relaxation and a pleasurable buzz slash rush. When when I was in college, I, I took this really amazing class on drugs in the brain, and the professor brought up an interesting observation. When you smoke, you draw breath deep into your lungs, hold it there, and then breathe out. It's kind of reminiscent of meditation or focused breathing exercise, and maybe this kind of motion is in its own way calming, and it kind of plays into this relaxing effect of smoking. But if there's one thing that we know about smoking, it's that it's addictive. And that has to do with that dopamine release and the subsequent pleasurable sensation. The brain has a specific circuit that mediates these rewarding sensations. And one of the key brain areas is the ventral tegmental area, or the VTA. Within the VTA, there are dopamine neurons, which will release the neurotransmitter dopamine, and GABA neurons projecting onto them, which will release the neurotransmitter GABA. The difference between the two is that GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter and will decrease in dopamine neurons' activity once it binds. In a pretty cool turn, both these dopamine and GABA neurons have nicotinic acetylcholinergic receptors on them, although they do differ slightly in structure. So we know that if we administer nicotine within safe concentrations, we observe an overall increase in dopamine release to downstream targets of the VTA. How does that happen? Well, let's find out. So let's take your average smoker. It's the beginning of the day, they wake up, they get dressed, and they pull out their pack to smoke their first cigarette. Nicotine floods the brain and immediately binds to those nicotinic receptors on GABA neurons. And while that, in theory, should activate those GABA neurons and increase inhibition on dopamine cells, reducing their activity, instead, 
these receptors are quickly desensitized. Once these receptors are desensitized, they can no longer inhibit these dopamine neurons, increasing their activity. Add on top of that the nicotine binding to the nicotinic receptors on the dopamine neurons, and you get a huge output of dopamine, which underlies that pleasant reinforcing effect of smoking. If you're thinking, well, if those nicotinic receptors on GABA neurons are getting rapidly desensitized, should the nicotinic receptors on the dopamine neurons get desensitized too? And it turns out that they just don't. They, they don't get desensitized that quickly. It might be related to those structural differences that we talked about earlier. But long story short, nicotine floods the brain and dopamine output goes whoosh. That finding is also the basis of nicotine dependence. No arguing. Smoking is addictive, and we, I'm sure we all know someone who started out with one cigarette a day and now smokes a pack. Because receptors get desensitized over time, we tend to need a bigger and bigger dose to get the same high. It's also the reason that smokers report that the first cigarette of the day is the most enjoyable one. Over the course of the night, nicotine levels within them drop, and that's what makes that nicotine blast from that first one so pleasurable. That tolerance means that people can't quit without going through withdrawal, as their brain has to rapidly and painfully adjust to no longer getting the drug it's built a dependence upon. Nicotine withdrawal can last from several days to several weeks, depending on how much and how long you've been smoking. After the nicotine clears the body, the user will start to experience headaches, cravings, and insomnia. They'll be irritated, restless, have a hard time concentrating, have trouble sleeping, and feel hungrier. That last one, I think, is true because cigarettes are an appetite suppressant, which, holy shit, okay, I went on this random deep dive um, into old Hollywood toxic diet culture, and some of the actresses' contracts literally said you're not allowed to eat food, you can smoke cigarettes instead, which is just kind of crazy, but that's Hollywood. <laughs> but beyond the reward pathways that drive nicotine tolerance, there's other neurological effects to smoking. One of the most interesting ones is the relationship between smoking and memory. It turns out that smoking is largely neurotoxic. A longitudinal study for eight long-term smokers found decline of their memory, cognitive function, and attention ability was closely related to smoking. More specifically, long-term smoking has been linked to reductions in working memory, the kind of memory which is used for everyday tasks like remembering what you had for lunch and that you need to call your dentist this afternoon. One explanation for why this happens could be that smoking actually causes the cortex to thin out at an accelerated rate. Your cortex will actually naturally thin out a little bit as you grow older, but smoking seems to hasten the process and speed up adult cognitive decline. However, in a burst of good news, some studies have shown that this process could be reversible and quitting smoking partially recovers cortical thickness for each year without smoking. Long story short, don't start smoking, kids. It's not worth it. But that was a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of smoking cigarettes. I hope that you enjoyed the episode and you learned something new. I certainly did. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes. And for some reason, there's a lot of papers this time. Um, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints... Please email me at Neuroscience Amateur Hour or DM me at Neuroscience Amateur Hour on Instagram.
This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and your loved ones. And if you're feeling so inclined to financially support my work, please buy me a cup of, co- bleh, a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash neuroscience. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.